you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 24 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Topman Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, how are you? All good? Very well, absolutely. Good to see you again. Mark, last week you will recall we talked to Tipperary-based solicitor Kean O'Carroll, solicitor for the late Vicky Phelan uh, and many other women who had been affected by the cervical check scandal and that was a huge interview. Yeah, it was harrowing. Hmm. Harrowing and, and just very, very powerful, wasn't it? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, a lot of reaction to that during the week. Um, and we're very grateful to Kean for coming in and talking to us. Well, today we have another solicitor on the show, Bill Houlihan, senior counsel, who will be known to all our solicitor colleagues for his involvement in the Law Society and loads of different things. What that man mm. hasn't done, I don't know if it exists within the, the, the legal world. Uh, and in particular, Bill is going to talk to us about mediation, but there will be a few other stories as well, no doubt. Looking forward to that? Definitely, yeah. Okay, well, before we get to that, let's discuss three cases that you have identified from the Decisis website. The first is we're taking a look at one of the many outings for Enoch Burke. Has anybody ever heard of this gentleman? Uh, This is the case of Board of Management of Wilson's Hospital School versus Burke uh, and a decision of Mr. Justice O'Moore. Mr. Burke was seeking a stay on proceedings, potentially pending the outcome of an appeal he had taken. Which appeal was that, I wonder? Uh, However, applying legal principles, Mr Justice O'Moore found that Mr Burke had failed to show that he would suffer irreparable harm if the case was to proceed. He hadn't met Mm. the test, so to speak. So for anybody who has uh, not been following this particular case, Mr Burke um, was... um, The proceedings were brought against Mr Burke because he wouldn't accept, first of all, his suspension from the for, for, from his school, and then he wouldn't accept the in, the injunction that was brought against him in relation to it continuing to attend the school while he was suspended. Um, during the course of the hearing, the High Court determined that the case ought to be case managed in order to bring some kind of um, uh, to, to, to to expedite the hearing. He then appealed the decision to case manage the case. So that matter was going up to the Court of Appeal, and that's absolutely his right. However, he he then applied for a stay on the High Court proceedings pending his appeal on the case management. And in order to get a stay on proceedings, you generally need to show, first of all, that you've got a reason for the appeal in the first place, and then you need to show that there's some prejudice in allowing the case to proceed. And Mr Justice O'Moore effectively said... Where is the prejudice here? That basically all you're appealing is the decision to case manage the case. You can't, you know, you can't show that you're suffering from having an expedited hearing. Um, and so he he didn't he 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 refused but, but for to stay. Some, for some reason, I feel this isn't going this isn't going to be the last we'll hear of Mr. Burke. For some reason, I think he's going to be back in court again. Will he? Be? I think you can reasonably <laughs> say that uh, whatever the final decision is, that there is likely to be some kind of uh, further hearing. Absolutely, absolutely, and we acknowledge um, and, uh, and, a little and bit trite there, but we, we have a right. We to acknowledge, to of course, yeah, uh, yeah. everybody's right to challenge any mm, decision, yeah. and we wish people well in that. Of course, mm. next to a Supreme Court decision. 
situation in the asylum area which balanced the applicant's family rights with the state's interest to maintain the integrity of the immigration system. This is the case of Middlecamp versus the Minister for Justice, in which the primary decision was given by Mr Justice Gerard Hogan. This concerned a Canadian couple, very interesting case this, and it involved family rights under Article 8 of the ECHR. But there was also an issue as to whether convention rights outweighed constitutional rights. So there was a lot going on in this case, Mark. Yeah, so the, the couple here were from Canada and the husband had come to study in Ireland and I think it was basically a four-year course and he was here on a student visa. His wife joined him in Ireland on a two-year, I think, work and study visa, I think it was called. Um, but the nature of these student visas, the the, the, the wife's visa, the, the work and study visa, is, is that it's a two-year visa without any means of extension. So once she came to the end of the two-year period, she then wanted to extend it further and she made the application and the minister refused. And I think uh, it, it's worth quoting Mr Justice Hogan's uh, uh, judgment in a couple of places. What he says here is, one, one does not, I think, have to be a dewy-eyed romantic to realise that this decision amounted to a very significant interference with the private life of this couple. The whole essence of marriage is a coming together for mutual love and support. To ask this couple, who clearly love and are devoted to each other, to live apart for two years is to ask a great deal. So he certainly wasn't unsympathetic. Yes. However... Can I just ask you a question? Are you a dewy-eyed romantic, Mark? <clears throat> when it comes to legal issues, I think yeah, the justice <laughs> is blind. Uh, but, Sorry for interrupting. <clears throat> but the, um, anyway, the, the tenor of the decision was that while the court showed extreme sympathy to this couple because they were uh, compelled to, li- to, 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 to not remain living together, the immigration system operates has to operate on a structured basis the wife obviously knew when she applied for a two-year visa that it was non-extendable. And it was pointed out by one of the concurring judges, it was certainly open to her, having returned to Canada, to return on a three-month tourist visa on a number of occasions. So while she certainly couldn't be here for the whole of the two years, there are opportunities to come backwards and forwards. So the the the, the, the final conclusion was that this, the state's right to an orderly immigration system does trump her right the, uh, the to family, family rights. rights. Yeah. Yes, yeah. okay. Listen, brilliantly explained. Brilliantly explained, Mark. Okay, finally, to a personal injuries case involving a very serious attack on a bus driver. The driver in question was attacked with a knife, so very, very serious. This is the case of O'Brien versus Bus Aaron, a decision in the High Court of Ms. Just Marguerite, Ms. Justice Marguerite Bulger. The court held that the attack was reasonably foreseeable, which is obviously the legal test, and awarded the bus driver significant damages. However, the judge found that there was contributory negligence in this case on the part of the bus driver as he didn't have his protective screen thing that you yeah. have on buses. That wasn't in place at the time, or he had it up when he should have mm. had it down. Yeah, so, so as most bus users of buses will know, there is a, um, the, the, the bus driver is kind of behind a kind of plastic screen and that screen can be opened. And it's described here as a safety screen. So the purpose of the screen is to protect the bus driver from attack. Now, this bus driver had kept his screen open and he was attacked with a knife at a time when the screen was open. Um, and so he sued the uh, sued his employer on the basis that it was an unsafe system. Um, and the employer said, well, obviously he should have had the screen closed. But the evidence before the court was that the employer, the bus errand in this case, was not 
as a systematically in, enforcing the the closure of these safety screens. They weren't. They they didn't kind of say it is it is mandatory to keep them closed. And the reason in this case that the bus driver said he kept it open was because he couldn't hear passengers properly if it was closed. So obviously, if the system was in place that said no, you have to keep it closed all the time, he'd have had no option but to keep it closed. He had elected to keep it open. He hadn't been told in his training or it wasn't a matter of policy that it had to be kept closed. And so, although it was accepted that there was a certain amount of contributory negligence, it was the the, the, the failure of bus Aaron to enforce the general okay. policy very good. of protecting Really well drivers. explained. And 75,000, wasn't that the award in that uh, case? That's correct, yes. 75,000 for a knife attack, a horrific experience, yep. no doubt, for the, for the bus driver in question. Back shortly with solicitor Bill Houlihan. Silence in the Fifth Court. Okay, so we are delighted to be joined today in the Fifth Court by Bill Holohan, a solicitor who is well known throughout the country and probably to many of our listeners. Uh, Bill is originally from Cork. He graduated from UCC in law in 1980, went on to practice first in Dublin for several years and then moved down back to Cork where he set up the firm of Holohan Lane and has practiced ever since. Now, he tells us that he was a litigator red in tooth and claw until about 17 years ago when he underwent a Damascene-like conversion and decided that litigation was the less favourable way to go and decided to concentrate more on mediating disputes. So, Bill, first of all, thanks very much for joining us here in the Fifth Court. Delighted to be here. And can you tell us... You had a Damascene conversion 17 years ago. What was it that led you to decide that litigation wasn't the best thing for your clients? Well, the way I describe it is that having worshipped in the satanic church of litigation for 25 years, I was converted to the one true church of mediation. Hmm. But ever since then, uh, like most evangelists who come knocking and say, I've come by Jesus, and they say, by Jesus you can go. Yeah. Um, but it was a lot of commercial litigation. Uh, also did a lot of bankruptcy work. Hmm. Uh, some of it as a result of litigation. Um, and I figured there has to be an easier way. Now, Padraig Pierce 100 years ago said that the education system was the murder machine. Hmm. I think if he was alive today, he'd say it's the litigation system. Hmm. It, in 1819, they abolished the right to trial of a battle which is a system whereby you're entitled to get the biggest, boldest so-and-so you could find to go out and bait the proverbial out of the other guy or his chosen champion. Mm. The legal is that what they mean by natural justice? Uh, <laughs> not quite. This was divine justice. <laughs> the idea was that God would be on the side of the person who won. Forget that the other guy's champion is six foot six, up, down and across, and 22 stone, and you send out a five foot two, eight stone weakling. Uh, you know, God was going to be on the side of the weakling. Um, and they replaced that with just getting the biggest, baddest lawyer you could find to go out, beat up the other side, mm. try and destroy their credibility, their argument, their case, etc. Yeah. Um, so it, it's extremely destructive. It's a negative inquest into the past, whereas mm. mediation is about a positive focus on trying to find a solution for the future. And what first introduced you to mediation? I mean, was were you aware of it before or did you sort of... I mean, I remember about 17 years ago, it started to become something of a buzzword in the law library. Would it oh, be... It's a, very that? sexy, but 17 mm, years ago, yeah. yeah. And Cedar, uh, who were a London body, mm. the Centre for Effective Dispute Resolution, started coming into Ireland, offering courses. Now there were others uh, who were also providing courses. Mm. But um, I'd read a lot in terms of uh, the US. I'd been to the US uh, and I thought, yeah, that could work. Mm. So I uh, did the training course and one of the lessons I learned the hard way, now CEDRA is, is the kind of the gold standard yeah. and have a very high attrition rate as in failure rate. Mm. Uh, I forgot to lobotomize the lawyer brain when mediating and they set a trap mm. for lawyers 
and I fell into the trap. Right. So I got the big eh, eh, on the first time out. So I went to London for the second time out. Family came with me, uh, did the entire course again, not just the, the assessment. And at the end of it, they said, uh, well, anything you did that you wouldn't do, if you had your time over, anything you didn't do that you would do. And I said, no, perfectly happy. And I got another eh, eh. Wow. But I gave them feedback. Now, I did it very politely, constructively, because uh, they said I hadn't demonstrated I was working toward the solution. So I mapped out, look, it's a, this is a painting by numbers exercise. You know, mm. this is where we were at. This bit had a bit of colour. We were working towards the solution. And three weeks later, I got a phone call basically saying you're going from zero to hero. We're actually getting the... You, you've yeah. shown sufficient insights that, that, oh, yeah. that we've changed Buttons our mind. And Buttons they actually changed their uh, assessment procedure afterwards oh, uh, right. to look for more detailed feedback, like what the hell are we at? Right. Etc. So it was on the basis of the feedback you gave, Bill, that changed right. everything. Yes. Wow. So and speak up. Speak, speak up, up at the end. Absolutely. Mm. No, I, I waited a week before sending it. My late father, God rest him, mm. said, never write yeah. in the heat of the moment. Yeah. Can, um, can, can I just ask you, and Mark, I know there's a load of questions about mediation, but why was it that you were too much of a lawyer when, when you were doing this mediation co- course? What were they saying? Chatting, what, 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 what's the lawyer in you that was, that was emerging okay. and proving you, an obstacle to becoming know, a good mediator? As practising barristers, you know the scenario. You know, the parties are just so close. There's a grand in it. And you say, I'll, I'll throw in a grand of my own fees in to get the thing across the line. You don't do that as a mediator. You, you, you can identify where the water is, but you don't bring the horses to the water. You, you have to let them make their own way there. But it's a question of trying to encouraging them, facilitating them, showing them possibly where the water is. Uh, with the consent of the parties under the 2017 Act, you can suggest solutions to them. But the, the voodoo bit is trying to get them to think of the answer and get them to think that they thought of it. So it's all about the skill of the mediator, isn't it? I mean, it I've is. sat in mediations and I think, what are we doing here? Yeah. This is a cod. But I've been in other mediations which have been incredibly successful. And it's not maybe always down to the mediator. If one of the parties isn't willing to budge, then there's not a lot you can do. You can be brilliant and you can be so wonderful as a mediator and you can't make progress. But the skill of the mediator, and it doesn't really suit everybody. I mean, there's a lot of people with those letters, the CDR, after their names, but it doesn't suit everybody. No, I, would have... I, I, I couldn't on air tell you an experience I had with a certain senior council barrister mediator who... Oh dear, <laughs> that's all I'll say. Um, no, it, it, I was chatting with Ernest Cantlin the other day, who has a lot of uh, work in the medical negligence area, back to uh, Keanu Carroll, your previous guest. Um, and Ernest said something that I would positively agree with. Two ears, one mouth. Yeah. And you listen, listen, listen as a mediator. It's a question of getting people to, to feel that you have heard them, you understand them, and they trust you that you will be able to go and let the other side understand, not necessarily accept that their argument is right or should prevail, but they understand where the party's coming from. And then once you get that understanding and respect going in a two-way flow, then you can work on the future. Hmm. And that's the magic moment when things start snowballing in a mediation and it starts moving toward the solution. But, you know, it doesn't always work. And if people go in with an attitude, be reasonable. Do it my way. And can it's I ask, do you, do you tend to have the parties in the same room with each other when you're mediating? Or are you doing the kind of shuttle diplomacy that a lot of people do? That's uh, what Jack would say. That would be an ecumenical matter. <laughs> it depends. It's horses yeah. for courses. It, it's not a question, as a lot of mediators do, turning up on the day and mm. saying, right, we'll kick off and get everybody in for a, a group hug. You have to work beforehand. Now, yeah. I, I have a pack that I send out to solicitors. 
because I'm conscious sometimes it may be the first time out for some solicitors. Yeah. And I, I explained to them, this is so that you can give it to your client so that they can understand the process. In reality, sometimes it's so that the solicitors can understand the whole process. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know... And and one, did, by pack, do you mean like a questionnaire? No, or? It's, it's a lot of information about how, right. it, how it works, yeah. uh, why it works, what's expected, how, you know, hmm. the rules of the game, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but you have to be very careful. That one, one time I was asked by a property company to mediate top and bottom noise transmission between two apartment owners. Now, it was Northside Dublin. I won't go any more specific than that. And I had a group hug at the start, as I call it, uh, getting them in the room and I'm explaining the process. No lawyers involved, just the husband and wife mm. one side, husband and wife on the other side. Husband jumps up and punches the lights out the guy on the other side. Now, once I got them separated, I was like, what's going on? And so he said, gonna... he was giving the wife, the, he was giving the, the wife the, the evil eye while she was talking. And I got the other guy and he said, it wasn't giving the evil eye. You said to listen, show respect, you know, take your time. <laughs> You'll get your chance to come back. I was just staying, I was just listening. I was watching them carefully. So once we got that clarified, they shook hands. It's like, on the basis that, yeah, if you thought I was giving the wife the legal or the evil eye, it's perfectly acceptable to suck me out. Well, you must but have wonderful skills as a mediator because I would have thought the victim there might have been very unhappy. But if you got him to shake hands, that's that's incredible. So going back to your suggestion that, that, that there's almost a choice between uh, litigation and mediation. I mean, it's not really an either or, is it? I mean, your your mediation sort of often has to happen with the litigation in the background in the sense that if you don't mediate this, then you get your biggest, boldest barrister to go and fight the case. Isn't that right? I mean, there has to be yeah. a bit of a stick sort of implied behind the, the scenes. Well, it is voluntary. Section 6 yeah. says it has to be voluntary. Yeah. Um, but there's a. it's funny, we have an act and, and very little case law. The UK is a huge body of case law mm. and very little legislation. Um, <clears throat> but we have... A situation where the courts can have regard to the conduct of the parties, whether they're reasonable or unreasonable, uh, you know, whether they'll offer a choice of two adjacent fingers on the one hand, moving in an upwardly mobile direction in response to a, an invitation to mediate or whatever. Hmm. And it ought to have cost implications. But the, there's a recent decision which kind of says, oh yeah, look, if somebody, you, you know, poo-pooed mediation without really considering it properly, it's a 10% reduction. It's kind of a back to yeah. Peart's decision in Good Body and Coldhurst. Mm. 20 more years ago where he said failure to issue a section 68 letter is a 10% reduction in fees. Yeah. Um, but people have to consider it. It's yeah. negligent if you don't. Mm. It's equally negligent if you don't advise somebody to do it. Um, like I've had cases where I've successfully applied to have two cases stayed because the failure of a solicitor to file the section 14 declaration that they had advised the client. Advised in relation to mediation. In relation to mediation. Yeah. The statute obligation yeah. advice, they hadn't, they hadn't filed the declaration as a result. And in one of them, on mm. the DAR, in the court, one mm. solicitor said, yeah, what it used what I call the lawnmower argument, but, 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 <laughs> and, and said, I, you know, you please don't do this. Um, I can't file the declaration because I didn't advise. And the judge says, you can start again. He said, no, I can't. The statute barred. I'll be sued next. Right. Can, yeah. can, can I come in there? I mean, as Mark said, you know, and we, we put a time on it. We said 17 years ago, this yeah. became very sexy and became the new rock and roll mediation. What about its, its, its I suppose, grandparent or our parent arbitration? Now, you are, you are former chairman of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators. Uh, I hear less about arbitration these days. Is, is that a goner now because of mediation? And it's a very different, it's a very different skill and a very different sort of 
means of resolving a, a dispute, isn't it? Yep. So well, where, where stands arbitration at the uh, moment? Again, as Bill? a judge or a mediator, you have to listen. Uh, you don't really intervene. If you do, you're likely to be hit on appeal. Um, but as Brian McMahon famously said at, at a charter institute, the arbitrator's lunch one time, he says, you listen to Mark for the plaintiff, you say, my God, he's right. And then listen to Peter for the defendant, you say, my God, he's right. And he says, it's very important then to listen to voice in, your, in the back of your head saying, cop yourself on, they can't both be right. Sure. Uh, but it's adjudicating, swinging up the evidence. Yes. Mediation's a different issue. You're trying to identify not what a judge might decide. You're trying to identify something that can work for the parties, what they can live with. So, you know, you come out of court, you could have both sides unhappy, both sides ready yes. to appeal. You negotiate in the round hall and people feel if they're negotiating to get a settlement, they have to give something up. It's a negative psychological yeah. process. And I'm very interested in what makes people tick and what makes people thick. <laughs> yes. Right? And there's more than the H and the difference. Absolutely. <laughs> but the, with the mediation, if you can get people in the right space, you say, right, what do you need to come out of this scenario with? What can you live with? And then if you can add value to that, it's a positive so intensing process. It's, 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 it's like, a different psychological thing. It's, it's like the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. But I, I, the reason I asked you about arbitration was because it's an alternative <coughs> dispute mechanism. Yes. Um, and I just don't hear about it as much anymore. And just in your, in your capacity as an arbitrator yeah. and as a chairman of the, of the Chartered Society, I mean, what works there? I mean, really, the arbitrator is almost like a judge, as you say, is an adjudicator, but yet it's not a courtroom and there should be some more informality as a result. Is no. it? No. no. Okay. You're effectively a private judge uh, and you're, you're hiring a private judge to decide the dispute. Um, the same principles essentially apply in terms of procedure. Now, it's not like the rules of the Superior Court apply. A judge will, uh, or even an arbitrator will issue an order for directions, but you'll have a timetable, just like pleadings in a court case. You'll have a points of claim rather than a statement of a claim. You'll have points of defence rather than a simple defence. Uh, now, you don't have discovery as such, but you can have orders directing exchange of so documentation. So why go to an arbitrator rather than go into court? Uh, it would be usually you'd find it in commercial agreements where okay, people so want part of confidentiality. Okay. Okay. It could be in, in intellectual properties involved, uh, in standard clauses in insurance contracts, yes. for example. Okay, obviously, well, obviously yeah. I'm aware of that. But but other than that, unless it's a clause within a contract, do you, do you think it has any greater appeal? No, because you're simply, and sometimes substituting a greater cost because you don't have to pay the judge hmm. directly. You're paying the judge indirectly through your taxes. But, you know, you're going to have to pay an arbitrator. Um, and... You know, arbitrations can run for a long period of time uh, and clock up huge fees that you don't have to pay to a judge. Mm. So it's not a, a cheaper process mm. by any means. And in terms of going back to mediation then, in terms of what makes good or bad mediation, a mediator, I mean, you've talked about the pack that you send your the parties beforehand. Do you spend a lot of time going through the papers yourself so that you properly understand the case or do you kind of hear it afresh on the day? Oh, you, you hear it afresh, but you need to get the headlines. You don't necessarily get, need to get the... Mm. The full, at one stage for a mediation, I got a phone call from the reception of my office in the Cable Building in Dublin. Mm. Uh, can you come down? There's a delivery here for you. And normally they bring this stuff up. And this is a bit unusual. I went down 18 banker's boxes. So I rang this list and I said, look, I don't need the full text of War and Peace. The flat <laughs> summary from Wikipedia will do me. Just, you know, yeah. give me the headlines. And this was for a mediation? A mediation. Not, <laughs> not even an arbitration. For, for a one-day mediation? For a one-day mediation. <laughs> uh, well... <laughs> there was the proviser to go over but and it ended up with I got three slimmer binders mm. um, but you need to understand where people are coming from you need to know what the, the issues are uh, but a good mediator is someone who will listen mm. 
who will make them feel heard, yeah. get them to understand the good points of their case, which mm. their lawyers have probably told them, yeah. equally to recognize what mm. might be the bad side mm. of their case, get them to understand the other side's case, mm. why they're taking the position they are. Um, now, it could be for perfectly valid mm. reasons, it could be for improper reasons, mm. but you, you try and get past that, take mm. the emotion out of it, try and get people doing mm. a Mr. Spock exercise, think logically, yeah. recognize the past, but focus on the future. Yeah. Right. And what about cliched, what I think of as the cliched bad mediator who goes to both sides and tells them both they're going to lose the case? No, you don't ever express an opinion like that. You, you raise issues. Like yeah. I, I had one where I mediated uh, last year. Um, but each side, the yeah. lawyers were saying, no, no, absolutely no chance we're going to lose. Right. And I, I got the lawyers into the room and I said, guys, you know, at the end of a hearing, some judge is going to decide that one of you is wrong. Yeah. Now, I, I'm not going to express an opinion as to which one of you is wrong, but one of you is going to be wrong. Yeah. Are you really willing to risk, you know, your client turning around and saying, you told yeah. me I was going to win. Yeah. You pick up the tab for this. I'm going to sue you. You know, you made me a promise that you didn't deliver on. Yeah. And even a, a simple client will understand, mm. I'm going to sue you because yeah. you didn't deliver. Bill, Bill, can I ask you about the reality of that, okay? Uh, as, you, as you keep saying to us, and you, you say with great authority, whatever you say, say nothing, okay? So you don't comment on either side's case. But what is the key to unlocking a dispute? Because you have to say something. You know, it is Kenny Rogers. You've got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. You need some stage to give an indication that maybe somebody should move, somebody should shift, and that might get the ball rolling. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I saw um, at one stage the phrase was used, you know, describing the process of litigation and how much they'd spent. And how's that working out for you? Hmm. Uh, you know, what makes you think it's going to get any better? You know, and, and that, not, it's, it's, the penny it's, it's not challenging. It's kind of... Yes, so the penny drops. So that's the skill, that's yeah. the skill. But it, it's down to the individual. You've got... I had a mediation a number of years ago, uh, four brothers on one side, a uh, younger brother by 15 years on the other side, uh, relating to a property investment. And the older brother said, look, this fella is 52, but he's a 15-year-old in his head. He's a young pup. He will slap down demands. He'll say, if, if you don't give me that, I'm out of here. And that's exactly what he did. And I ended up having to mediate between him and the process over an hour to get him. Mm. He left the distillery building went off and I had to mediate with him for an hour to get him back into the process. While Meanwhile, keeping the plates spinning in the other room. Um, but I was asked by a bank to mediate this issue. And I couldn't, and they were paying me. And I, you know, said, look, I'm not going to refuse a check, but I couldn't quite understand why the bank were interested in sorting it out. And you know, there was an elephant in the corner of the room that everybody uh, doesn't want to talk about. Here there was a herd of elephants they wanted <laughs> to bring in. And there was an issue that the solicitor on the property transaction hadn't uh, actually got the mortgages signed. There was alleged forgeries of drawdown on a second loan, all sorts of issues. But the following day, the bank manager rang and said, can I ask you a question about yesterday? And I said, no, all confidential. And he said, no, no, Brian, that was the younger brother, is here with me. Um, he's told me all about it. I said, well, look, he shouldn't be doing that either. And he said, well, he wants me to finance the deal, the settlement. I said, well, that's a matter for him, but I can't say. No, no, it's a very simple question. Did you use your shotgun hypnosis or drugs to get him to agree? <laughs> <laughs> can, can I ask you then, and, and as I said, I'm sure you had wonderful success and I can, you exude somebody who can try and bring about a solution between, between two warring parties, no doubt about it, Bill. But what happens when you're unsuccessful? So you have a day-long mediation, you're a man with a reputation, you know, you want to succeed, 
Um, if I was looking for a mediator, I would say I want somebody who has a reputation, who doesn't want to walk away at the end of the day, not having got a resolution. Now, everybody wants that. I mean, that's an obvious thing to, to want. But, you know, there are some people that that would might mean something a bit more to. Some people will do their best, but others will just. And I can imagine you leaving a room. You have A over here are two rooms, A in room A and B in room B. And at the end of the day, you say, look. We're getting nowhere here. I've used all my skills. I've used my listening capability, my two ears and my one mouth mm. and all that sort of stuff. And it hasn't worked out. How do you feel? Uh, disappointed for, more for them than for me. Um, if I feel that honestly I have done the best I can, um, you know, I've done the best I can. Uh, but if for whatever reason it is, intransigence on one side, uh, the fact that, I, you know, I might think in my head, you know, the advice they're getting is not great, but I'm not going to, uh, voice that or physically manifest a kind of a rolling of eyes or anything in terms of the, the legal advice. Um, but it's unfortunate that people would end up uh, spending a fortune in litigation. Yeah. Um, now, I don't do family, but curiously enough, I've done a lot of family business related disputes. Uh, and, you know, brother emotion versus, is very high. I, yeah, and, and brother versus brother. Like I had a mediation last year mm-hmm. and one brother could not believe that uh, he, as he expressed it, I was treated by my brother this way. And he started crying. Mm. He was a mature man. Um, but, and it obviously destroyed the family because within the family, people were taking sides. Um, and that was ever before mm. it was even a probate dispute. This was something to, mm. between living and brothers. Can I ask you about another aspect that I've come across in mediation where very often, obviously, if you're in court, you've got one party against another mm-hmm. party. In mediation, you very often find that there are there's more than one interested party on either side of a dispute. You might have a husband and wife on, on each side and the husband might have a different view than the wife or you might have a number of business partners and some of them are going, right, we're not going to settle and the other ones are going, let's just get this over with. Do you find yourself effectively mediating among the, the one side and among the other side or do you do you sort of take the view that that's for them to sort out? As Francis Urquhart said in the... House of Cards, you might say that. I couldn't possibly comment. Sure. But you're right. Mm. <laughs> um, sometimes you have to do, do that. And that takes time. And of course, the people in the other room are saying, like, he's an awfully long time in there. Like, what are they talking about? What's mm. the issue? And you can't tell them because you can only convey back from sure. one room to the other. Yeah. yeah. What's said. Now, I uh, generally invite somebody else to come in with me uh, to co mediate, mm. usually as a kind of a mentoring stroke training exercise. Sure. Uh, could be a young solicitor, could be a young barrister. And it's amazing the perspective that they can bring as well, actually. Hmm. Uh, they may be new to the process, yeah. but you know they, they have sometimes very valuable insights. And depending again on who's involved, we might agree that they will say something to yeah. the parties. And it, it's like something coming from a, a son in the family. Sometimes the a, age a, a different voice or, just unlocks the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or depending on the age, hmm. it, it might resonate more. Hmm. Um, you know, so, but, and that's part of the, the thing as well. And can I just, unfortunately we're coming to the end of our time, but just like to ask you a little bit about um, the the sort of online tools that might be used in mediation. Obviously during COVID we were getting very used to sort of Zoom calls and that kind of thing. Did you ever uh, conduct a mediation by Zoom or using online tools? And and how did you find that as an experience? There's no substitute for face-to-face. Reading the temperature in the room, the body language, you know, you don't see the fidgety hands, you don't see the fidgety feet or whatever yeah. it is. Um, 
I got a number of years ago, myself and another great mediator, Keith Kelleher, who succeeded me as chair of the Charity mm. Institute. He's a quantity server, not even a lawyer. Mm. Um, but we mediated between two brothers, older brother, uh, it was a company in a certain area of uh, business, older brother, about 10 years older. He was the driver, driver, remember rotary, networker, sales, younger guy. He was the accountant, the strategist, the numbers mm. man. Younger brother suddenly announces he wants to sell up, uh, seasonal future in the business, etc. Year and a half of older brother, Albert Reynolds style, one page memo, younger brother, spreadsheets, mm. detail, etc. On the point of petitioning to wind up the company. And went into mediation, uh, again, establishing trust. Established trust with the young, both, the, but particularly the younger brother. The younger brother explained the real reason he wanted to liquidate. Get a cash pot and go to America. That was what he had said he wanted to do. It was because himself and his wife had tried to have children. They'd gone through IVF six times, unsuccessfully. Here, he'd have to sign up on board at all at the option board. Seven or eight years assessment. No kids available, etc., go to the States, the NSA will spy on him for two years, hmm. uh, come through that, but he'd have a kid in the house in two years' time. Right. Now, where in the round hall on a Monday morning yeah. with a winding up petition does that feature? But he was so in awe of the older brother, he couldn't tell his own brother. Hmm. So, and, but he trusted me to tell the older brother. Now, the older brother said immediately, look, absolutely, if it comes to that, I'll do it. You know, He's my, my brother. But I said, hang on a second now, you don't have to liquidate and sell and so on and so forth. You own a pack of properties that you're operating out of. Why not sell and lease back? Generate a pot of money. Give him the pot out. Yeah. Went to America. Very successful establishment over there. Had the kid in the house two years. Stayed as an executive and a shareholder. Five years later, rather than a liquidation fire sale value, mm. they did sell for five times the valuation at the mediation. Wow. So there you go. Yeah. <clears throat> We're nearly getting there, Bill. And there's, there's one question I want to ask you. You are a senior counsel and congratulations. You're one of the first solicitors in Ireland to be made a senior yep. counsel. Can I ask you about being, as people listening to you will know, listening to those wonderful dulcet tones, that you're from the real capital. What is it like, somebody like yourself, who's a national player, uh, operating in Cork? Is it, is it difficult the way the courts work? I mean, uh, it, <laughs> it is very Dublin-centric. Of course, the High Court goes on, on session to, to Cork. I'm just wondering, what is that like as, as a career solicitor in Cork who has operated at a national level? Will, will you just tell me about that? I'm curious uh, about that. In 1991, I was in a practice in Cork and we decided to set up a Dublin office. I was the then unmarried partner. So I became the partner in residence. And it, m- up to 1998, I was in Dublin five days a week. But after a, a whirlwind romance, I 15 years together, myself and my wife got married in 95, number one son arrived in 96, number two was on the way in 98, and I said, look, lads, I need to be home more than the weekends. Uh, and I set up my own practice at that stage, um, and I split my time between Dublin and Cork. But if you were to ask most Cork practitioners, they'd say, sure, you went to Dublin 30 years ago. Because <laughs> uh, that didn't feature. That didn't feature. Like one day I, but you I, needed to go to, to <clears throat> Dublin. That's the point. You couldn't practice the way you wanted to practice in Cork. You couldn't. Well, how that all started was, uh, and there's another entire podcast about how I got into bankruptcy work. But uh, I was doing a lot of bankruptcy work. I was in Dublin every Monday uh, for bankruptcy work. And then there'd be kind of a spillover of dealing with other issues on the, on the Tuesday. So I was there kind of two days a week anyway. So it was natural that I would become the, the Dublin-based person. And again, then the, over the years, I've been very lucky I've got into different areas of work, licensing, uh, intellectual property, etc. Um, and again, there's another podcast in two years' time maybe about uh, how I successfully told three judges of the Supreme Court mm. that a seat is not something you sit on in a theatre. Mm. It's airspace. Um, 
So I did a lot of that uh, did myself. So I would do a lot of kind of high court commercial work, uh, even as in the, in the Supreme Court. But I wouldn't have got that kind of work in Cork. Yes. Yeah. I suppose that's the point I'm trying to make. I mean, you know, should there be an operation in Cork? Should there be another centre of kind of legal operation? To the, maybe not to the same level as Dublin, but do you know what I mean? I'm just saying, you know, Cork practitioners are hindered a little bit in the fact that you, you don't have access to, you have obviously access to the, the high court when it's there, yeah. but it's not there all the time. No, and it's been suggested that from time to time there should be a resident high court judge in Cork and uh, that that judge would deal with anything and everything. Um, but there was this process of centralisation. There used to be a Cork local bankruptcy court, a Cork local admiralty court, uh, and they abolished all those in the 80s. Um, they had fallen into disuse, really. Yeah. There's an expertise uh, now. It used to be that if you became a senior counsel barrister, you had to move to Dublin. Yeah. There's no choice. But now, ease of travel, ease of communication, etc. There's no reason why it couldn't happen in Cork. But it would require a change in, in kind of policy. Unfortunately, Bill, I think we've come to the end of our time, but we do have the, the all-important final question. Do you have a book or film or any other work of art you'd like to recommend to your colleagues in the legal profession or to any law students who are inspire, inspired by hearing you and want to follow in your footsteps? I, I could give you a small library, but as uh, you know, I suggested that I'd, and I brought along the original 1935 a copy of it, Uncommon Law by A.P. Herbert. And is that actually a first edition that you're holding? That's a first edition. My goodness. It's a book of cases that were originally published in Punch magazine, now defunct. But they're kind of amusing cases, one of them being that to pay his taxes, he brought a cow to the Inland Revenue mm. with the terms of a cheque written on the backside of the cow. Uh, and the Revenue refused to accept it, and he successfully argues in court that it's a negotiable, a negotiable instrument, it doesn't have to be on paper. And another one, uh, for example, where he played golf very badly, he was cursing, and he was uh, prosecuted under the non-existent Profane Oaths Act of 1745. And uh, there was a sliding scale depending on your status in society. Lords and ladies got penalised much more for playing golf and cursing. He argued, and there was a category of gentlemen, and he organised, or he argued rather, he could not be penalised as a gentleman because he wasn't a gentleman when he was playing golf. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Bill, this has been absolutely brilliant. Fascinating. And thank you for telling us all about your experience in various different areas. I know we focused on mediation, but uh, as, as you said, there are, there are future podcasts in you, Bill. We, you never know, we might bring you back to the fifth court at some stage. Thank you, thank you very much for being a guest on our show today. The fifth court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Solicitor Bill Holohan, SC. We've got to put in the SC uh, for talking to us and in particular talking about mediation. Mark, if you had a row... Would you, would you go for anybody else as a mediator? He certainly has a great insight. He's obviously in a lot of mediation. I think he's yeah, a wonderful personality. I, I really enjoyed that interview, I have to say. Uh, I would also like to say a big thank you to our producer, Colonel O'Morine, and to the Dublin South podcast studios and Lee Brennan, our sound engineer. If you have any comments or any legal stories you'd like to raise with us, please contact us on our website. And again, can we ask people to share the podcast? People might be getting fed up now with all those requests. But uh, yeah. well, we're told for, to do it. For Connell the, tells us to do it anyway, for, doesn't he? For the few people who haven't heard about the show at this stage, um, <laughs> make, make sure if they're interested in hearing from Bill Holohan that they get to hear yeah, well, about this episode. You listen to Bill. He's, he's yeah. well worth listening to. Well, if you're hearing this outro, you'll have already listened to Bill and you'll know that we were right when we said it was a great interview. So for me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court.
Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.